I've got a question for us this morning. It's a question we're going to be asking for a while. Um, the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I think that that is the second most important question that any of us can ask. Who is Jesus? Uh, I'm asking in part because that's an, that's an appropriate question to ask this time of year. Uh, you know, even with all the hype of, of bunnies and eggs and candy, uh, there's still, this time of year in our culture, uh, you, you can still hear the faint echo of people asking, who, who is Jesus? You know, what is it that's really going on? Palm Sunday, Easter, who, who is this guy that the Christians seem to make such a big deal about? Um, it's appropriate this time of year to ask that question, and, and frankly for us, it's always appropriate to ask that question, who is Jesus? Because we claim that Jesus is the center of everything that we do here. We, we, we pray in the name of Jesus, uh, we, we sing to and about Jesus, I even have a t-shirt at home that says it's all about Jesus. It's a bold claim for a t-shirt to make, but it's, you know, that, that's what we all claim, that's what we, that's what we say this church is about, we're about Jesus. And so it's good for us to ask from time to time, well, who is Jesus? Who is he really? Is he more than just a name that we throw around? Uh, it's an important question for us, and so we're going to take some time to answer it. Um, we're going to take some time to answer it because we're going to, as we start a new series uh, uh, through the book of Mark. Okay, so we've been doing different sermon series. We had a couple weeks on prayer a few weeks ago, but this, this week we're going to start a sermon series on the book of Mark. Today we're going to try to ask that question, who is Jesus? And Lord willing, uh, probably for the rest of the year, brace yourselves, we're going to ask that question, who is Jesus, as we work our way through the book of Mark, passage by passage, and, uh, and try to answer that question. But what we're going to see, I think, in, in, in broad brushstrokes, in, in a big picture, is when we ask that question, who is Jesus, here's the answer that we'll get. He's a king. He's a king. But he's a different kind of king than we would expect. He's a king with a cross. So we're going to start a series in Mark today where we try to figure that out. What does that really mean? Uh, we're not going to start at the beginning, though. We're going to switch it up a little bit. In, in respect for where we are in the season, the time of year, we're going to start at the end of Jesus' life. We're going to start at Palm Sunday today. Next, we're going to look at Easter. And after that, we're going to jump back to the beginning and work our way through the whole book, asking this question, who is Jesus? What does that matter for me? So if you can, if you've got your Bibles, uh, please turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark's in the New Testament, uh, second book in the New Testament. If you've got a pew Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 682. We're going to be in chapter 11. Um, chapter 11 is where we find the events that we celebrate today. This is what's called the triumphal entry, uh, or also known as Palm Sunday because of the palm branches that get waved and, and cut down for Jesus. Uh, and as we look at this passage, um, the question that we're going to try to answer is who is Jesus. And the first thing that we'll see is that Jesus is the king. So if you're in Mark 11, you can follow along as I read the first ten verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. 
And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So in this passage, what we see are these events that we celebrate in Palm Sunday. You could read about the same event uh, from a couple different perspectives in the other Gospels, but what we've got here is, is the one in Mark. And, uh, and what we see is that Jesus tells his disciples to go and, and get a colt and to bring it to him because he wants to ride into the city of Jerusalem. He's going to enter the city. And as he goes in there, as he gets on the colt and starts riding, the crowds around, they see him coming in and they start to shout. They start to say, Hosanna, they're praising the Lord. Uh, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And he, and he enters into Jerusalem on this colt. Uh, what we have here in this little scene is a, is a scene where Jesus is clearly seen to be king. Okay, this is just one snapshot in the book of Mark, but here in this snapshot we see Jesus is clearly a king. It's the first point I want us to see, that Jesus is king. Uh, we see this because the crowds, first of all, treat him like a king. As he's riding along, they start to cheer and to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then in verse 10 of, of Mark 11, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're looking at Jesus. They're seeing him riding in on a donkey. And they're saying, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they're saying, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're associating the coming of Jesus with the coming of the kingdom of David. Now, many of you have got experience with the Bible. You know David is kind of the prototypical king. He's the great king, the one who is uh, the, the greatest king in Israel. And, and when people talk about the coming kingdom of David, they're saying, this Jesus is coming. He, this is the king we've waited for, the king that was promised to David, this Messiah, the, the, the one who's going to uh, right all the wrongs and set the world right. This is the king we're waiting for. It's coming. This kingdom of David is coming as Jesus is coming into the city. So the people are acknowledging Jesus as a king. They're saying, our king is here. Now, it's not just the people, but Jesus himself is also saying that he's a king because of the way that he enters the city. He's acting like a king. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with the prophecy in the Old Testament in Zechariah 9.9. You don't have to turn there, but I can read it for you. Uh, In Zechariah 9.9, there was a prophecy, again, for the same king, that one day a king would come and he would uh, would deliver the people and he would rule. And the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 goes like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 goes on to say, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now Jesus knew this prophecy. He knew that when the king came, the king would be riding on a colt entering Jerusalem. And so he tells the disciples, go get a donkey. We're about to get Jerusalem. Go get this colt and bring it back to me. It wasn't that Jesus was tired. He's like, I just can't make it the last few miles to Jerusalem. He says, there's a reason for this. I want you to bring this colt because when I get on the colt and ride into Jerusalem, I'm going to be wearing a billboard sign that says, I am king. I am the king that you were waiting for. And so in this little snapshot of what we're celebrating today, this triumphal entry, we see that Jesus is clearly proclaimed to be king. The people acknowledge it to some degree. Jesus proclaims it by what he's doing because that's who he is. Now, this is not a new idea in the book of Mark. We're picking up at the end, so I've got to give you the flashback. What does this mean? Well, this is really a climax of a great theme in the book that Jesus is a king. Uh, You see, when Jesus first shows up on the scene, 
in Mark chapter 1. Uh, Mark records just one sentence that he says at the beginning of his ministry. In Mark 1, what Jesus says, the first words out of his mouth that Mark records are this, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So when Jesus begins his ministry, the thing he says is the kingdom of God is here. And he says that because the king is here. So the kingdom of God comes when the king comes. And so what we see then in the next pages, you know, the next few pages of Mark as we read through these chapters is this whirlwind tour of the king just walking through the world, bristling with kingliness, bringing his kingdom in the world. So he's just being king over everything. And we'll see this as we look through the book together slowly, but I want to give you a big picture today. Jesus is the king over everything. As you flip through Mark, you see, first of all, that Jesus is the king over the law. He, he begins to teach people the law. And people are amazed because he teaches as one who has authority. He teaches as one who made the law. Not as one who's under the law, but one who created the law. He's the king over the law. He has showdowns with the, with the scribes and Pharisees about the Sabbath, the Ten Commandments. You, know, you think about the law. This is the most important set of laws. And we took some time as a congregation to go through these Ten Commandments. And Jesus says about the Ten Commandments, the, the Sabbath, he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He says, you guys are going to quibble about what I can do on Saturday? No, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I made the thing. I'm king of the law. We see that he's king over demons. Time and time again, Jesus encounters people who are possessed by demons. And when the demons meet Jesus, they are afraid. They cower in fear and they beg him not to destroy them. They, they, they proclaim more clearly than anyone else that Jesus is the Son of God. And they say, please do not hurt us. And Jesus, without a struggle, without a, without a hard battle, just with a word, he defeats them. He says, go. I'm king over you. you got no power here. He's king over nature. Time and time again, as Jesus is walking through this world, the world obeys him. He tells horrible storms and winds to just stop. And it's not hard. He just says, stop, and they stop. He takes a couple loaves of bread several times and breaks them, and keeps breaking them, and keeps breaking them, and keeps breaking them until thousands are fed. He's multiplying matter. You know, that I can't do that. We, we can't do that. But the king of nature can do that. He made it. Uh, he walks on water. Jeff talked to us about that last week. He walks on water. We can't do that. The king who made the water, who created the laws of nature, can do that. He's king over diseases. You know, from the very beginning, Jesus begins to heal people. And the word gets out, and more and more people come. And he heals every kind of disease. There's lame people. He helps them walk. You know, he, he, he heals, heals them, and they walk. People who are blind, he, he, he heals them so they can see. People who are deaf, he speaks to them, and they can hear. All sorts of diseases that you can imagine, none of them is too hard for Jesus because he's king over everything, and he can conquer disease. Even death, we see that Jesus is Lord over as he raises a little girl who has died, brings her back to life, just like waking her up from a sleep. As Jesus walks through the world as a king, he's bringing the kingdom of God, and eventually the disciples start to realize it. It takes them a while. It takes them a while. But eventually they start to realize that he is no ordinary person, and he himself is the king of the world. And so in, Ma in, in Mark 8, it's kind of the climax of the whole book, 
Jesus asked the disciples finally, who do you think I am? They've been hanging out with him for a while. He asked them who other people think he is, and they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say uh, that you are John the Baptist or one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? You people who know me better than anybody. You've seen all the things that I do. Who do you say I am? And uh, in Mark 8, 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Okay. That, word, that word Christ, that, it's a, a Greek word that means anointed one. It's not Jesus' last name. Okay, let's clear it up. It's not his last name. It's a title. It means anointed one, or in Hebrew it would be the word Messiah. An, an anointed one is just a king. That's what you do. When you make somebody a king, you anoint them. And they become an anointed one. So what Peter is saying here, he's saying, you are the king. Jesus, I acknowledge it. You're the king. That's who you are. Okay, and this is really good news. Right? This is really good news that Jesus is the king. Because if he's the king, that means he can take care of our problems. Um, the, the people who followed Jesus were really excited to find out that he was king. Because they had lots of problems. They had some big problems. Uh, their biggest problem, if they had to name one, if you took a survey in Jerusalem, you said, what's your biggest problem? They would say, Rome. Rome's our biggest problem. Because here we are, we're in our own nation, but we're under the oppression of Rome. We've got to pay these oppressive taxes. You know, they're really in charge. We're not free. We're an enslaved people. Our biggest problem is Rome. And so you think, okay, our biggest problem is Rome. The king is coming. What the, the problem the king's going to deal with is he's going to deal with Rome. You know, we're really excited about this. We've got a king who's coming, and he's going to liberate us from this problem that we face. And so crowds flocked to him, and they were very, very excited because they realized that Jesus was king, and this was really good news for them. Now, it's really good news for us, too, that Jesus is king. Right? I mean, let's just think about this a little bit. It's Jesus. He's king. He's king over, over the law, over demons, nature, disease, death. There's nothing that Jesus is not king over. I, I think we should get a little excited about that. Because we've got problems, right? I mean, you got problems? I got problems. We got problems. Maybe it's not Rome, okay? But we've got problems. Uh, we've got financial problems. Gas prices are going up. Um, that's hard. There's other other things going on. We've got um, you know maybe problems at work or problems with with friends or coworkers. Um, you know we've got problems with our health. We got problems, okay? But Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So we should start to get a little excited here. Because even though we've got problems, Jesus is king over any of those problems. I mean, the good news that we've got to hear first of all, thank you. the good news that we've got to hear first of all is that Jesus is king over these problems. So if you think that problem that you've got is the biggest problem in the world, that there's no way that you can deal with it, if they're, you know, we're occupied by Rome, we can't, we can't defeat them, you know, I, I, I can't defeat this problem in my life. The first thing that we need to hear is that Jesus is big enough for that problem. So you go ahead and think about it. Think about the biggest problem in your life right now. I'm doing the survey of the crowd, you got that problem. Okay, the good news, first of all, Jesus is bigger than that problem. He's the king. He can take care of it. But the news gets even better than that. The news gets better than that. Because he's not just coming to deal with those problems that we think are so big. He's coming to the problems that are really big. See, one of the problems that the people of Israel had was that they thought that Rome was the biggest problem. They thought there's no way there could be any problem bigger than that. And if a king can come and can deal with that, then we'll be fine. 
One of the problems that we have is we think there's no problem bigger than my, uh, my health needs. Like there's, there's no problem bigger than that. If, the, if a king is big enough to deal with that problem, then I'll be fine. But Jesus came to say, those problems that you think are so huge really aren't that big at all. In fact, you have a much bigger problem. You have a problem of sin. And so Jesus came as a king, yes, and he is big enough to deal with all of our problems, but he's also big enough to deal with the biggest problem of all. That's the problem of sin. And that's why Jesus was not just a king. He was also a king with a cross. So for answering that question, who is Jesus? He's the king, yes, but he's also a king with a cross. See, the kingship that Jesus brought didn't turn out quite like everyone expected. On Palm Sunday, he was entering the, the city to great cheers and acclamation, but five days later, things had turned south. If you're going to read about it, it's in Mark 15, the events of the crucifixion. Jesus came as a conquering king, but he ended up getting arrested. He came, people thought, to defeat Rome, but he ended up being crucified by Rome. And people thought he was the king, and at the end of his life, folks were calling him king all over the place. Everyone was saying, hail to the king of the Jews. He had a little sign above him on the cross that said, king of the Jews. The soldiers were calling him king of the Jews. They gave him a crown. It was a crown of thorns. All the expectations were turned upside down. This king wasn't the kind of king that they expected. Jesus ended up getting handed over to Pilate, beaten by Roman soldiers, stripped naked, and hung on a cross. And he died. And I know we've heard the story a lot of times. But I just want us to recognize this isn't, this isn't what happens to kings. Right? This is not how it's supposed to work. When you enter the city of Jerusalem as a king, you don't end up five days later hanging naked on a cross, dead. That means you weren't a very good king. That means you failed. Except everybody thought. Is that what happened? Did Jesus actually fail? Was he not such a good king? Did he not have power to rescue himself? Well, no, it was always part of the plan. If you were to flip back to Mark 8 again, Maybe you never left. But in Mark 8, right after Peter confesses that Jesus is king, Jesus tells Peter something incredibly surprising. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly. And again, in, in 9, 31, don't have to read it, but he says the same thing. And in 10.33, a third time, he takes the disciples aside and he says, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And every time, the disciples either don't understand it or they ignore it because it just doesn't make sense for them. That's not what a king does. Because a king comes to deal with these problems. The king comes to defeat Rome. And if you die, you can't defeat Rome. But Jesus didn't come to defeat Rome. He came to defeat sin. And that's why he had to die. In Mark 10.45, we read this verse in our responsive reading today. Jesus explained why he had to die. He said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus had to die because there was a ransom that he had to pay. We don't use that word ransom a lot anymore, except in the context of, kid, context of kidnappings. 
Um, but the, the word, it doesn't, it's not just referring to stuff that happens in kidnappings, but it's, it's just referring to this process where you buy back someone from something, where someone is in a debt, maybe they're a slave, or even, yes, they've been kidnapped, and they've got a, they've got a debt. And a ransom is what you pay to free someone from a debt. That's what the word means. And so what Jesus is saying here is he came, he came, the reason why he came wasn't to defeat Rome. The reason why he came was to pay a ransom. The ransom he came to pay was yours and mine, and the price he had to pay was his life. So what Jesus is saying here is our problem is far bigger than we ever admitted that it was. Our problem is not that we have health problems or financial needs. Our problem is that we've got sin in our hearts. And our sin demands uh, that we pay the debt. Or that our, our sin uh, demands a penalty of death. That's the debt that we've all earned. And so Jesus came to pay that penalty in our place, to die for us, to pay that penalty so that we might have life. Now, about this time, whenever you share this with someone, especially in our culture today, uh, the natural objection that arises in our hearts is to say, why couldn't God just forgive? Right? This seems like a, a really messy and bloody and violent way to go about things. Like, okay, I've paid a debt, but my debt's against God, right? So why couldn't God just say, well, that's all right, we'll just forget that one, and, uh, and Jesus wouldn't have to die at all, and everything could be fine. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but, but that's an objection that a lot of people have. Maybe you even have. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, this, this is not the way that forgiveness works. Um, let's assume for a moment that I'm, uh, that I'm dumb enough to try to have nice things at my house. Okay, let's just, just assume that. Uh, and let's say I have a, a lamp. It's over here. Let's, let's assume also I'm a big fan of lamps. And I've got a lamp, and it's this fancy lamp that I love, and it's a $100 lamp. It just costs a lot of money. Uh, and my kids are playing the ball in the house or something, and they break the lamp. Right. Well, the lamp's broken. I've got two options. Uh, I, can, I can demand that they pay for it. I can demand that they pay the $100 for the lamp. Or I can forgive them and say, you guys don't have to pay for the lamp. Right. But even if I do the second one, if I forgive them, so they don't have to pay for the lamp, that debt is still there. The, the lamp is still broken. I'm still at $100. Even, either they are absorbing the cost of the broken lamp, or I am, right? It doesn't just go away. There's a, there's a, a debt that's still there. Either they're out $100 to pay for the lamp, or I am. So that's how forgiveness works. When you're forgiving someone, when you're choosing to forgive, um, you're paying for their mistakes. That's why it's so hard, because we don't want to pay for other people's mistakes. But that's what happens in the gospel. Jesus comes, and he says, either you pay for your mistakes, or I do. And he dies on the cross to pay for our mistakes. See, this is why Jesus had to die. This is why he had to be a king with a cross, because we had a debt that he had to pay. So who is Jesus? Well, he's a king. He's a king with a cross. Now we get to the part that some of you have been waiting for. Some of you have been really annoyed that I started this sermon by saying the second most important question that you can ask is who is Jesus? Because you wanted to know, well, what's the most important question? I'm getting there. See, the second most important question that we can ask is, who is Jesus? But the most important question we can ask, after we find out that he is, our, that he is the king with a cross, is, is he my king? Who died on my cross? So the, the second most important question, who is Jesus? Well, he's a king with a cross. Most important question, is he my king? Who died on my cross? 
This is the most important question because unless we answer yes to both those questions, there is no way that any of the good that Jesus did is applied to us. Right? Is he my king? Like, is he actually my king? Have I submitted my life to him? Not just is he a theoretical king, you know, does he theoretically, in the abstract, have control and power over everything, but is he my king if I put myself under his authority? Not is he my parents' king, or is he my, my husband's king, or is he my pastor's king, but is he my king? And you have to say, is he died, did he die on my cross? That is, have you accepted what he did on the cross for you? You know, the work that he did was effective, but it's not automatic. You know, Jesus died on the cross and he paid the penalty for sins, but it's, it's sitting there. It's, it's money in the bank, but it's waiting for you to withdraw it. And unless you do, unless you accept that forgiveness, it's no good for you. That's the most important question. And so often we fall off the wagon one or two ways. We either do the first error where we want the, we want the king without the cross, or we do the second error we want the cross without the king. Let me explain that. See, the first one, we want the king without the cross. We, we like the idea of a king. We like what I talked about before. You know, we've got these problems. God's going to take care of our problems. He's powerful. I want all that. But we don't like the idea of a cross. We don't like the offensive idea that says we're bad enough that Jesus had to die to save us. We prefer to have some sort of imaginary word where we can be equal partners in our salvation, uh, where we can, we, we can think, oh, this is how it works. You know, Jesus was just looking around, and he was, he was surveying for people that he thought would be good to have on his team, and he, he comes up and he says, oh, Dan, I've been watching you, and, and quite frankly, I'm impressed. Uh, I, th- I think that you're doing a good job, uh, and, and I really, I want you on my team. You know, I, I want you to join with me. I want, I want to be your king. Will, will you come? You know, it, let's, let's have this partnership deal where, where you continue to do a good job and you serve me and you, you, know, you be a good person and then, and then I'll be your king. And, and so if you do your part and I do my part, we'll have this good partnership and that's how it'll work out. And, and that appeals to us because it gratifies our pride and it says, oh, I really am good enough. I do have something to offer. I don't need that cross. I don't need to admit that I've done anything wrong. But when Jesus came, Mark 1.15, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And they didn't follow that with, everyone who's qualified, please line up over here and I will evaluate your resume and I will decide who's going to be on my team based on your performance. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, the only way that you get the king is through the cross. It's not through being good enough, it's not through earning it, it's not through performance, where we can somehow manipulate God into giving us his benefits because we've pleased him so much. No, it's by coming to him humble and repenting and saying, no, I've committed sin, I deserve to die, Jesus died in my place and I accept that. And a note to to all you Christians who are saying, yeah, I've done that. Um, Just remember, you never become equal partners with God in salvation. Um, you never earn his favor. It's not like you get in by grace and then you start to please him through what you do. No, it's, it's always by grace. It's always the cross. We're always repenting. So you need the king and the cross. You can't earn it. You can't get the king without the cross. But we fall off the other way, too, where we say, well, we want the cross without the king. As we like the benefits of the cross, and we say, free gift, salvation, eternal life, sign me up, I want that but we don't want the challenge of a king who says, I'm in control of your life now. You know, the crowds flocked to Jesus. We'll see this as we look through Mark. The crowds flocked to Jesus when he was giving away free stuff. They're like college students in pizza. It's amazing. You know, Jesus is giving away free stuff. He's healing people. 
He's giving out food and loaves. He's teaching people this incredible stuff. And they're, they're, they're coming to him. They're loving it. There's huge crowds. He's this rock star in Jerusalem, in, in Judea. Everybody's there because he's giving out free stuff. But you know when the crowds start to thin out? It's when he starts to say stuff like, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Um, he starts saying things like, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Uh, people start to leave when he says stuff like, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, Jesus demanded, and he still demands for us, that when we follow him, we give up our autonomy. We give up our self-rule. We submit ourselves to him. We die on our own cross and say, um, Lord, you're in charge now. You're my king. I'm submitting to you and putting my whole life under your control. And that's really hard for us. Because we prefer a Jesus who gives us free stuff without making any demands. We prefer some sort of made-up version of Christianity where we say, I can have salvation without discipleship. Where I can have forgiveness without actually putting myself under the Lordship of Christ. It's appealing to us, right? It's appealing. It, you know, we, can, we can have all the benefits of the cross without any of the challenge of the king, but it's not legitimate. Uh, it, it's made up. It has no value. It's not real Christianity. It's just not an option to have the cross without the king. You can't just say, well, I prayed a prayer one time. I'm covered. I got my fire insurance. Don't have to worry about hell. But, you know, I still got my money and, and my time and my, my interests and my family. And, it, and if it happens that the things that I want to do would coincide with what Jesus wants me to do, well, then sure, I'll serve him. Because I want to do that anyway. But if Jesus, in his word, starts making demands on me that I change my behavior, that I submit myself to his rule, that I give him my whole life, well, I'm not going to do that. you crazy? Well, that's what Christianity is. It's submitting your whole life to the kingship of Jesus and accepting by free grace the forgiveness he purchased on the cross. And that can scare us. Sometimes we resist the kingship of Jesus because it scares us. We think, well, if, if I give up control of my life, then he might make me do something I don't want to do. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you've got to remember the kind of king he is. Right? He's not the sort of king that we expect in this world who says, okay, you're going to follow me now, so I'm going to use you up to achieve my goals. You know, you're just my servant. I don't care what actually happens to you. I, I have my purposes. I'm going to use you to achieve my purposes. And if you get hurt in the process, well, fine. And that's how normal rulers and kings work. But Jesus isn't that sort of king. He's a king who died on a cross for you. See, he's already demonstrated his love for you. And as part of that love, he asks you to submit your life to him. That you would trust him and believe that he has your good at heart. See, who is Jesus? He's king over everything. So we have to follow him in everything. He's also a king who died on a cross to pay the ransom for you. So we ought to accept that free gift. The question that I want to leave us with today, and I want you to think about this, this Easter week. Is he my king? Who died on my cross?
It's the most important question in the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that you have paid the penalty in our place. And we thank you also that you demand obedience because we are not smart enough or good enough to know what we ought to do with our lives. And so we thank you for your kingship, your good and wise and benevolent rule over our lives, and we thank you that you have purchased us from hell. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.